Hello everybody and welcome back to giving the mic to the wrong person. This is the first part of a chat we had with repeat guest Derek Varn back in late December. Part 2 will be posted later this week, but if you'd like to hear the whole thing now, you can sign up at our Patreon at patreon.com slash giving the mic. Also, and this would really help us a lot if you could tell just one person about our show. We are trying to increase our audience and... You know, just mention it to just one person would go a long way to doing that. Check out Derek's podcast, Pop the Left, at dietsoap.podomatic.com. Thanks. But anyway, yeah, thanks for uh, being up for rescheduling at the uh, sorry no last problem. minute, everybody. Oh, and just a quick go around the room. Uh, I don't think, uh, just for folks you haven't actually met, uh, Garrett, say hello. Hello. It's Garrett. Hey, the, Garrett. Are, are I've you? listened to the episode or two with you, but I have not had a conversation with you. He's here to pick a fight. I, yes, I'm here to fight. And here's Good. Jacob, who freaks out about being on camera. Honk, honk, honk. There we go. Honk. So. There's a lot of you. All right. Oh, yeah, there's three, uh, there are three of us. Yeah, we, originally we did our show would have like four people, but one of them moved uh, moved in with her grandmother somewhere in North. <laughs> but man, so that's that. All right. She cool. saw the new Star Wars. She posted about it on Facebook. She's seen it like three or four that's, times. That's the last time I've seen her post on Facebook for months. So yeah, it was a noteworthy event. What did you think about the new Star Wars, Varn? I thought it was highly enjoyable and deeply stupid. Wait, did you actually see it? Yeah, I did. You're kind of ruining the bit. That was. <laughs> well, to say, well, you're, yeah, but yeah, you have regular, you have regular high schoolers now, so it's kind of a thing of even just to be able to. Uh, they, I'm guessing they would. They, well, no, winter break would have already happened, so they were probably saw it and raving about it, or or just none of yeah, them. Yeah, they were they were talking about it, so I. Like they were talking about it right before winter break started, so I went and saw it so I could communicate with them. And it's good, bad, um, you know that sort of thing. My wife enjoyed it, and she was like, "I want you to see it." And I'm like, "I don't really want to watch it, but here we go. I'm gonna go see it. I'm su- I'm sure it is. Uh, it's amusing to watch it. And I'm gonna and- watch that and Little Women back to back. Ugh. <laughs> I don't know. Little, uh, although we are going to, uh, we are going to see, uh, we are, we are going to see, uh, hopefully, the pre-patched version of Cats at a, at a matinee tomorrow because my uh, my sister, who is also a high school teacher, like her kids get her, you know, kind of shower her with gift cards for Christmas. So she just kind of like, you know, got a bunch of like, you know, here, here's a real. It's like you have Regal Cinemas by you here, have a gift card. So we uh, we're gonna go blow that one on. Um, on the filmed musical, which did y'all see Knives Out? I loved Knives Out. Still need to. What's that? You don't need to? No, I still need okay. to. It's an enjoy- yeah, I still need to too. It's a very Honestly. enjoyable film. Very enjoyable. Sweet. All right. Um. Very enjoyable, Jeremy. Really yes. enjoyed the hell out of it. Good. That's the. Um... <laughs> Ryan Johnson. I don't think he's made a bad movie. I'm going to go out and say that. The whole point of this bit is that I am supposed to ask a question about some juvenile, shallow piece of pop culture, and Varn, the Chad mature, 
adult socialist is like, I don't know anything about that. That is the whole point of this, and you have ruined it. Yeah, unfortunately, this uh, this gets harder as I teach high schoolers and have to actually keep up with pop culture. That's fair. I was going to say, well, it could be worse. Uh, it, they, um, it could still be the 90s, and you, have to, and you would have to keep up with SNL in order to talk to high schoolers. Oh, but, dear God. Yeah. <laughs> or that movie, The Faculty. You'd have to talk about that movie. No, the faculty actually. I, I enjoyed that because not, you know how many films do you have John Stewart as the uh, as an uh, as an invading alien uh, geometry. Oh, was John teacher. Stewart in that? I don't even remember. Oh yeah, no. And the I think thing I remember about that movie is they made up a, a slang word, which was razor. And they're like, that sounds razor, man. And uh, that's one of the things I like least of all in pop culture when they try to make up new cool things that teenagers say. That's decidedly not fetch. Not fetch at all. That's what I'm talking about. I uh, I enjoy I did enjoy when they did that in uh, in Heather's though. Well, Heather's is a is yeah I mean Heather's is shway so much shway yeah that's not how you use it anyway. But the um, so I figured for uh, going off of because um, Derek you you know you re- going off of something you mentioned actually about a month ago that's not only talk about your uh, <laughs> in the. In the spirit of the latest Star Wars film of uh, of resurrecting uh, resurrecting things long gone, but you know no one's ever really gone. Uh, things back again of resurrecting your uh, pop culture argument cast with Doug Lane, uh, and also uh, I think mentioned something about talking about um, <laughs> I guess the process of changing your mind about long held beliefs over the years. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of that lately. Um... What I'm currently doing is resurrecting Pop the Left, which was a podcast that Doug and I did for basically a year and a half, although we only did like 10 episodes of it, um, with a few other people, uh, predominantly Nick Pale, who became a hyper-conservative about a year later, unfortunately. Mm. Um, He only appeared on like three episodes. And then we, you know, Doug and I did our thing. We had a fight um, about something stupid. And we canceled the podcast. And then I started Systematic Redness as kind of like a a separate project. And eventually Doug and I reconciled. He sort of, um, you know, acquired the brand, so to speak. Um, And in the last year, I lost a lot of passion for Systematic Redness. There's just too many left podcasts right now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Word up. And I felt like I was part of a circuit. And uh, I was like, I, I found myself just doing like random shit that I wanted to do. And um, instead of and kind of ignoring left wing twins and I didn't really want to do another interview about the DSA or anything like that. So I canceled it and was going to start an arts podcast. But Doug sort of was like, well, we're still a political press sort of. Um, and so then the next thing we did was resurrect pop the left but it's it's been interesting because um i decided with doug to take a historical approach to it so i have to dig into archival stuff and some like sometimes i'm even like trying to read texts that are barely translated in english and have to go back and check the german oh boy um and now those episodes haven't come out yet um and i don't know if they will when your listeners hear this but um so it's been 
me talking about the history of the Communist Manifesto, me talking about the revolutions of 1848, me talking about very specific like historical things. And one of the things I'm realizing is Marxism as a like corpus of work, even even if you're just limiting yourself to Marx himself, is a lot less cohesive than we tend to make it. Um, and if you think you're going to cite it chapter and verse to answer all the problems in your life, you're going to have some big problems if you're actually – not just, you know, proof texting the way Protestants do the Bible, where they like throw out like a quote every now and then. And you see people do that. But when you start looking at it in context, you look at the changes, you look at the revisions, look at how these things have developed. It becomes clear that it was kind of an unfinished historical project. And um, it makes having hard conclusions on things are very hard rules on things. I mean, like there are baseline minimums, mm-hmm. but – what it I'm, makes having very, very hard positions a lot more untenable if you are trying to be intellectually honest. That's cool. And you are listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back. I am your host, Jeremy, joined by uh, a round, another round of old friends. Uh, we, you are joining us in Media's Reses. And uh, going around the table, uh, everyone here locally, please introduce yourself to the viewing audience, starting on my right. Hey, everybody. It's Garrett. I've been on before. All right. Honk, honk. It's me, the Goose from Untitled Goose Gang. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm, a sp- I'm the other special guest today. And uh, special guest on the line, could you introduce yourself to the, uh, for, the, for the three people listening who don't know you already? Would you, could you uh, do a quick little introduction to yourself? Yeah, I'm C. Derek Varn. I'm a poet and podcaster and teacher. Um, I work for Zero Books as a book reviewer and as a podcaster, and I currently do a podcast called Pop the Left. Excellent. And you have been with us before, and uh, it's always and I always enjoy our our conversations, uh, lengthy and wide ranging as though they uh, though they are. So um, I thought it would be great to you know like reach out to us before and or reached out to us uh, about talking about the the resurrected pod and i figured hey, that's good enough to start with and so we will go from there going back to your points about um you know intellectual honesty about when you know in perspective about marxism as a coherent thing uh, i think my question would be how much of that is because of the fact that even what like two-thirds of the stuff marx actually wrote nobody really had access to until you know what a couple decades after the first world war yeah i mean there's a huge amount of stuff that was unavailable and the other thing is a lot of the most important marxist texts were actually deliberately suppressed by marx um but that i mean capitals volume two three arguably capital volume four also known as economic theories of surplus value they were not really released um most of the important letters, including the critique of the Goethe program, weren't released. So he was his own worst critic. Yeah, and and, 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 and editor. And, yeah, well, a lot of it had to do with the fact that Marx was involved with an active political project where there were pe- factions who didn't really agree, and they were constantly being snarky with them, but also of self-censoring some of the harshest criticisms for the sake of keeping like the Espe Day in its early forms and. The 1870s and 1880s alive are the Communist League and the 1840s and 1850s alive. So early 1850s. And so there's a lot of revisions. There's a lot of flipping back and forth. If you read the manifesto, for example, and then read the Communist League's demand and read Engels' accounts of it, you'll see that those demands change like in two months. Um, 
It's pretty quick and for so, mid nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. That's pretty quick for you know for mid nineteenth century stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of those demands, as opposed to the framework around the demands, were written by committee. Um, so it's hard to know like what was Marx's thought, what was the collective thought, or whatever. And so citing a central authority on that's uh, kind of hard. And then once you get into people who cite Lenin that way, Lenin's all over the place because his opinion is changing and evolving in regards to stuff that's actively happening in the revolution and the Russian Civil War and the aftermath thereof. And so you could find Lenin softening appeals and sometimes sounding more democratic and other times sounding more autocratic. He's all over the place. Um, it sounds no, like not, maybe hmm. Marx and Lenin should have first maybe uploaded some of this writing to their Patreon so they could get feedback from like their real close friends before releasing it more broadly. Well, I mean, in some ways that's actually kind of what did happen. But in other ways, it's it's... It's hard to know. I mean, what the other thing is like we tend to approach Marx and Lenin as a completed corpus with it that's totally coherent and done, and that's it's effectively turning turning it's it's the same way we uh, a lot of uh, Christian types think about the Bible. It's like, well, it's a single book, ain't it? You know, it was published at one time, and it's all coherent with one coherent author and a coherent set of texts, and like so, yeah, it's just one thing. Yeah, and we forget that like. You know, of the key works, the Manifesto and Capital Volume 1 were actually printed with Marxist Imperator. Uh, to some degrees, the Grandessa was too, but everything else is was was released by Ingalls later, or sometimes even later than that. Yeah. And people didn't have wide access to it, it particularly if you didn't have access to German. Um, it wasn't collected. A lot of it was obscure. There was also active political parties in Germany and in Russia and in all kinds of places that were selecting texts and selecting the parts of which they wished. And there were other factions that have largely been forgotten and debates that were and, and debates that contextualize some of these things that have been completely dropped. Now, I mean, that shouldn't surprise us. That's true for a lot of things. You read like the debates about the U.S. Civil War and how to interpret Lincoln and and this, that and the other. And you see similar problems. Was Lincoln a real black liberationist was he was he an other opportunist it's very hard to know and depending on what you're reading you can find all kinds of justifications um the difference is we don't approach most you know most american heads of state as coherent intellectuals with maybe the exception of the found of the quote-unquote founding fathers and i'm using scare quotes there yeah um but even then, we actually don't tend to read them as having a coherent corpus. Like we don't read John Adams as having a coherent idea through his entire life. And we do that with Lenin and we do that with Marx. And even with the um, founding fathers, there's things like the Federalist Papers, which complicate their work considerably. Correct. And also with the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, they were written by committee and published post- posthumously. And some of the key stuff wasn't. Well, most of the key stuff was published, but a lot of the the understandings that undergird them were not. But, you know, if you read some of the Federalist Papers and then read James uh, read what James Madison did as president, for example, you're going to have a hard time reconciling that. And yet you can. Yeah, so, was, I think it was also like, you know, you had a good you'd sp- uh, good span of 25 years there, too. Easily. And in, in the terms of Marx, you have the span of about 40 years of writing. Yeah. The uh, how how has because part of the I guess part of the topic would be you know changing one's mind over the years how has kind of like that understanding maybe you know perspective shift 
kind of like well, I guess first first how is that how has that affected you personally? And then I, I think a broader question is is how does that change? for lack of a better word, kind of like leftist culture, when you realize that, you know, that it's, no, you can no longer have people trying to, um, I don't know, like, not, uh, you know, pull, pull rank or even like do like, you know, status shots on each other just by like citing chapter and verse when you realize, yeah, this isn't, you know, this ain't gospel here. And even gospel was kind of, you know, was edited after the fact. Well, one of the things that you have to do is kind of pull apart like four things what's a degenerated research program Mm -hmm. what's a degenerated political program what's a still viable research program and what's a still viable political program and those are four separate things that depend on each other and with marx in particular those things were never really intended to be separate because of the hegelian framework in which he wrote but in another way like you can definitely see tensions in things like the way he writes about capitalism and the manifesto versus the way he writes about capitalism and Das Kapital, where he's almost, there's almost a heroic, well, there isn't almost, there is a clearly heroic element to um, capitalism and a manifesto that is tampered down a bit on Das Kapital. And the other thing is like, you see changes in wording and stuff being somewhat significant, but you don't really know what's prompting it. Um, you know, I used to consider myself a pretty far left left communist, which would be to the left of official communism. Now, now, I no longer think that position is viable. There is no official communism to be the left of. And what that is mostly taking up with is the esoteric um, view of various, quote unquote, left communist sects, mostly mm-hmm. of the pedigree of this Italian thinker named Bordiga. But um, it, in general, the armchair dude for you online types. Yeah. In general, I actually find that if you look at Marx's work in context, you actually can't maintain like there's like an invariant program that's consistent because there isn't. Marx's stance towards nationalism and um, is evolving constantly, um, and even for that matter, even Bordiga's was, unlike a lot of their modern counterparts. And that what they thought democracy could do was changing a lot too. I mean, they they. Um, uh, Ingalls was somewhat sanguine on the the revolution being mostly defensive after full enfranchisement of the population because, well, in the developed world, most of the population would be proletariat. Right. So if you had full enfranchisement, you could just vote it in. And I mean, he was still pretty militant in a lot of ways, and we we shouldn't we're not we shouldn't make Ingalls out to be Gandhi, but. Uh, that was a real a real belief. Marx was, for example, and I was reading in the uh, some of the economic manuscript notes that he was frankly more open onto how things happened, and he was like, "Well, socialism could come out through a democratic dictatorship of a class, or it could come about through autocracy, which would not be as good, but they were both possible." Um, and so those kind of tensions arise up. Uh, the, the issues that I have is a lot of the way we approach like modern geopolitics is through the lens of like not even just the Cold War, but really like the 1930s and 40s mm. and maybe up into the 1950s where there is like clear um, where the imperial powers are much more clearer and they're much more militarily opposed and and stuff like that. And you can't really turn to Marx for clear answers on that. And to make it even worse 
Um, the historical conditions in which Lenin and a lot of the theorists up into the 1950s were writing just are not ours. Um, so clear guidance as to what we should do in these things um, is a little bit harder to hold on to. So, for example, there is this principle in, in Lenin's interpretation of Marx, which I tend to hold, which is called um, – uh, revolutionary defeatism, and that is that when a, an imperialist power invades a non-imperialist power, um, you root for the non-imperialist power to win, even if they're backwards. All right. For example, um, hmm? well, could you give an example, please? Well, so for example, like you could hold the position that say the Baathists were proto-fascist and in uh iraq but that the revolutionary position would be that they win against the united states because that was a traditional innocent interpretation and that was also based off the idea it was but that that context though was specific to russia so you were rooting for russia to lose against germany even though germany was an imperial power so was russia that's what lenin was running about in, um the 19 the 1910s and that's where that principle comes from um well but when all powers are imperialist um, and there's an existential like crisis yeah. on the line, and there's no real power that's necessarily in a working class interest. Picking sides in these debates often becomes, I don't know, a kind of facile way to show that you are opposed to the American empire, but you're not necessarily thinking through everything you're supporting. And you even see social democrats who are not n normally that militant holding this position. And I've become just a lot more agnostic on how we should feel about these things. And part of that's from my personal life, like when I was in Egypt and seeing the results of Syria mm -hmm. and watching leftists try to move to support this, that or the other faction because they thought they were more anti-imperial. And in seeing the results in talking the refugees flooding into Egypt when I could, when I could usually through an Egyptian friend who spoke Arabic better than me because my Arabic's almost non-existent um, – trying to get a grip on things and deciding that I just didn't understand, nor could I necessarily support any obvious international proxy side in that conflict, that I would not want to support Assad, but I also would not really want to assort to support the Free Syrian Army. And while the Kurds were a lot more defensible, there were even some problems there. So there wasn't a good position to take. Hmm. Um, I, now, I Oh, Jacob. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about the Khmer Rouge and how there was a period that Chomsky talks about in Manufacturing Consent where the United States was for it and then against it and then for it again, because that was just the politically expedient moves at the time. And right. I think going into right. something just because you have an agenda can often blind you to the realities of the situation. And I think leftists are no different than foreign governments in that regard. I remember, like, for example, five years ago, people telling me that Putin was a valid anti-imperialist against United States, you know, incursion into Europe. You've not heard that tone taken by most people today because if he is an anti-imperialist, he's a right-wing anti-imperialist. And I think that was even clear back then, but people didn't understand the context of Russia. Now, that's not me changing my mind. That's people changing their mind and not admitting it. Um, so one of the big things I have gone back and forth on in the last few years is like the role of the of the nascent expanding socialist movement and what its limitations are. Now, I tend to be a naysayer, sort of what I'm good at, and I'm usually right. So podcasting is for, yeah. It is, it is safe to bet on no 90% of the time. 
I haven't been betting on no in regards to the DSA, but I also haven't been betting on yes. I've been assuming that they that what's going to happen with that's going to be important, but it's not going to be what they think it is, and it's not going to be what I think it is. Um, and I change my position on what I if I think that's good or bad on any given day. And you could ask me tomorrow, and I feel differently about it. But one of the things that's been fascinating to me is the plateau of the DSA. Um, it does seem to me like there might still be some minor growth in the DSA ranks, but it really has hit the kind of raw that uh, the wall that the SDS did of about forty to uh, about somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand members, and about and really only about ten to twenty percent of those being really truly active. Yeah. Now that's going to be expected in most organizations. The bigger they get, the less active they are. But why is there that wall? I actually don't know, and I've been trying to think about it, about what it means in relationship to maybe the current election, to the Democrats, the opposition to Trump, the way the sort of standard impeachment narrative may complicate that, the way that Bernie does seem to be successful, but um, and is still kind of opposed by the mainstream Democratic brand, but also is increasingly accepted on the, on the kind of progressive wing of it. Um, and if that hurts or helps Bernie, I don't know the answer to those questions. And I, my 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 stance to them are going to change every day. Nor, and I know this might be super um, uh, confrontational to some of your listeners. Nor do I know that I think that necessarily Bernie winning would be a good thing. Um, and that also depends on a lot of other factors that are hard for me to gauge right now. And one of those being like, how sympathetic is a democratic Congress going to be and how democratic is going, is the Senate going to be? And I got no idea. Can something be overdetermined before it even happens? Right. Like what happens if Bernie wins with popular mandate and can't do anything? Will that be discredited? How discrediting? I can't know any of that yet. Um, there, I could use polls for guides, but we're talking about something where there's not really a strong American historical precedence for it. It's not like Eugene Debs ever came close to actually win it. Yeah. Garrett, you had something? Um, yeah, I don't know if it's uh, if we're already past it, but I mean... It's never stopped us before. Know, Go for know, it. Someone that got into the DSA early on and then i've i've like entirely lost my enthusiasm for it um would say that from my perspective it was that i I, it was so um resistant to any kind of internal structure that uh that's where i grew weary with it like and i don't know i mean the sds i do know that i i that like my uh uh, a family member of mine said they went to a meeting to an S- to an SDS meeting and they never had a second one because they couldn't figure out how to make a decision about how to make a, how to have a second meeting. And it's I guess it's kind of just a cute story, but uh, that's the only thing I wanted to say that my like I like I want to have enthusiasm for the DSA again and it's just not there. It's just not there. I am not a member of the DSA, <clears throat> but I am a pretty big fan of Bernie. I am also a fan of Bernie. So but, two years, mm-hmm. but who the hell knows? I mean, again, what you know, Bernie's going to be able to do, uh, you know, you know, um, stuff that executives can do, and then we'll just have this back and forth, or maybe they'll impeach him too. I don't know. Maybe impeachment is now the uh, uh, the a future going. Every president should expect to be impeached at least once. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way it is. I mean, most forward. of them deserve it. I was going to say, yeah. How many well, presidents and how many? What, what, what's the last president we think we've had that did not in, in, uh, that that didn't uh, didn't do shit that uh, raised, was kind of raised to that level? Right. That's what I find so aggravating about the impeachment 
in general this time around is that uh, I can't get over George W. Bush. I cannot get past him. Like, like me neither. And yeah. and I'm like. And when I when people go like this president has done something so odious and it's like yo has he I mean honestly like like I mean comparatively speaking it's you know anyway but yes maybe impeachment's just the way of the future but it it that speaks to a general dysfunction in our system of government in general which I think is probably what we're looking towards oh just, just, yeah I think just we've been just continuing to break down yeah. Uh, what, well, I, I think as leftists, we don't know what to do with the dysfunction of, of American politics. The conservatives have usually had that dialogue, right? I mean, that's been they, they've been talking about that since the seventies, yeah. right? And and while the radical end of the left has always been like, well, of course, bourgeois government, blah blah blah. But and you know, I, I actually tend to agree with that. But what do you do with that? Um, there have been no major socialist revolutions in a first world country, not during a world war. And there have been none since there have been nuclear weapons. You know, right. just pointing that out. Now, the, if, you, if, you, if I turn off my dialectic historical mind for a second and go full Bayesian, you know, if I just think about it probabilistically speaking, we also don't have a lot of history for any of this to base this off of. Yeah. Um, and that that means that like making hard rules. That's why everybody turns to the Russian Revolution, or you know, the are they become supporters of like modern China or whatever? Because dear God, we need a model, and there really isn't one. Yeah, there's nothing so, else out there. So like, what can we cling to? Yeah, like what institutions yeah. can you build like that that have any kind of historical precedent? Speaking as a creative person, it's really hard to be creative, and it's even harder to be creative in a group collectively so the idea of thinking up a better system can be difficult even if you're just writing a story but the idea of trying to will something into being as a system that other people can participate in if it's not a board game or a video game seems like possibly one of the most difficult things that you can do in life well you know, the funny thing about this is capitalism wasn't willed into being. It comes about from a system, from like various ideologies, none of which predicted the current system we would have. A bunch of failures of feudal production, a bunch of failures of other answers to the failure of feudal production, which is like, um, you know, franchise feudalism. It was largely a Eurocentric project, not totally, but mostly. Mm. And. But, I mean, it, that's a big part of its power, isn't it? Just the fact yeah. that it is essentially a manifestation of smaller interests basically coalescing around each other. But also, right. some, but, but in a random pro, in like a random kind of right. Like, and I'm I'm trying I'm drawing a I'm drawing a comparison between envisioning a better, more egalitarian system and what has essentially well, developed. To over be fair, it's unclear that Marx thought you could. Like Marx, Marx's big critique of the utopian socialists is they were trying to think a way through problems that you couldn't predict. And thus everything ends up, even very simple things, ends up seeming impossible or stupid very quickly. Um, but that's very hard to like get people to like fight and die over, right? Like yeah. here's this thing that we hate. Here's this non-answer to what may happen if we get rid of it. Yeah, well, that's well. going back to the, the, the earlier point talking about um, because of – like folks who are so used for use for so long of like um, 
referring to, you know, settling, trying to settle arguments or arguing shut out by like citing chapter and verse, except for the fact that all that, you know, that all of, um, you know, be that, be it actual scripture or be it kind of Marxist scripture. It's like, no, this, this isn't a single body of work. It's kind of like a, a thousand one pieces coming all at once coming from, you know, from, uh, from a decade where like, where like plenty of other people writing the stuff had no access you know, we're writing the stuff like for decades before they got access to any, you know, to like say other critical earlier documents. And then in the light of when those things get released, everything changes. And I, I think Mike and I, I guess my thing about changing minds is what does that do uh, for any sort of like uh, movement culture when um, when you when you don't have that kind of like firm ground of dogma or, you know, or of uh, that or even like dogma or even like sense of authority or anything like that. You know, there's like morality a, substitutes. Yeah, but morale. I mean, and here, like, I'm like one of my slide doses is ethical philosophy. So, like, I'm not speaking as an amoralist. But the way we use morality, even left wing morality, is always structurally reactionary. We're reacting. We're reacting to injustices. Reacting to things that are wrong. Um, that is not that. Um, when I say structurally reactionary, I don't mean it's like substantive reactionary. I don't mean it like you know we're all just reactionaries now. But that's the moral impulse, and that's useful for you know getting people motivated. It's actually – it leads to a kind of a la carte ad hoc sort of approach to politics and activism though. Yeah. You know, it feeds in the NGO culture. It feeds in the special interest work, and it actually feeds into like – And it does turn, like, turn a lot of people off actually. You know, yeah. like, like – like, I can't believe you would say something like that. I'm so disappointed <laughs> in you right now. It does turn a lot of people off too, uh, but anyway, I'm sorry, I, I did interrupt. No, go, go you. ahead. I mean, like the, the other thing is, anything that's highly motivating because it's polarizing is going to have a polarizing effect, right? Like yeah. some people are just going to go, ugh. And it's and it's, but yeah, that's kind of a thing with like a thousand. It's kind of like a thousand and one little. Um, I mean, it's, that was you know so the criticism of DSA as an organization of it's as a as a barely organized occupy. But um, but you know it's it's it is a hundred you know it's a hundred disparate GoFundMe's rather than a, than a, any sort of coordinated political program. Right. You know, assuming I mean, assuming well, we have the ability to even coordinate such a political program nowadays. And that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, uh, I wonder how much like trying to establish a, a normative theory, uh, which we don't have a cons like a coherent. You know, we can't all point to one normative theory. Uh, um, and go well. This is what we all believe together. Now we all have minor differences on this and that. We don't even have that. So, like, I, I just wonder if, like, whether a, a normative basis for what we're doing is even like like worth spending time on. But it does seem to be what motivates people. So I don't know. Just not all the people together to do the same fucking thing. Right. Right. Well, that was always kind of the paradox of DSA. I was even talking about it two years ago, is that its growth was predicated on a kind of looseness that was kind of an accident of its weird mm -hmm. relationship to the Democratic Party, that it was not a party, but it was, but it wasn't, but it was. Um, and it became a clearinghouse for a lot of very, very desperate sex. And one of the weirder things that's happened in the last four years that I may think we're going to look back on and feel really dumb about. Is, that's like, that's gonna um, happen. That's gonna happen. But that when does that not happen? I was gonna say that's gonna happen regardless. Because I mean, well, one of the things I feel really I've got to worry about a lot is the popularity of meme culture. But meme culture leading to ridiculous and 
at first laughable positions becoming more and more dominant. And we saw that on the right wing in, in like 2015 to 2017. Mm-hmm. But we haven't really dealt with the fact that's been happening on the left wing. Um, parlor Stalinism is a real thing now. Like, like I now meet people who hold North Korea defenses positions and not in the like, you know, we don't need the United States to invade North Korea because it would be a massive waste of life. But in the like, we should defend Jusei. Like, I meet those people in the real world. Um, They're getting less ironic. Yeah, it's getting less and less ironic. And it started off with like Stalin memes like five years ago. And and like there there are increasingly more radically conspiratorial positions tied into this hmm. they're more sophisticated than like left-wing uh 9-11 trufism there's like literally people who are now claiming that large parts of marx's corpus was like fraudulent or altered in some way to make stalin look bad post facto god it's almost and, like it, it's almost like internet conspiratorial culture is bleeding you know bleeds into all internet discourse including into this stuff yeah imagine that also though you know one of the things i've changed my mind on frankly is uh that this conspiratorial culture is new and i'll tell you what did it what i was watching pluto tv um with one of my partners on uh on christmas day like one does (laughs) and watching unsolved mysteries on rewind for like four hours oh dear oh yeah they um what the what the original like 1985 88 uh robert stack vintage yes those were those those, those I, I was I watched those growing up and I was a God I was in like a middle school and they're not and that shit will freak you out. So one of the things that I was what I was getting into though about when I was thinking about that is like oh even when we had all the gatekeepers and stuff, um, while there was a certain non politicized valiance to all these like you couldn't make a political ideology out of a lot of these conspiracy theories mm-hmm. this shit goes back to popular culture to the mid 80s at minimum and probably back to anything past watergate that's true so it's not new it's 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 not new at all i mean is it is that is it surprising to us that boomers who were also from this culture were are, are the people who are spreading it on internet culture because it's actually been part of their mass entertainment for like 40 years I mean, even to an extent, things like the John Birch Society that traveled, you know, that was a lot of, you know, that that had a big membership in the 50s and 60s, and they trucked in a lot of that bullshit, you know what I mean? That was a way of spreading all that stuff, too. And well, this, I mean, Alex Jones comes straight out of that. Does yeah, he really? Yeah, I didn't know that. From it. Yeah. He grew up around those people. What makes it what makes it uh, more interesting, and I, it's something about meme culture that I think is unique to the, to the last decade is you can ironically layer in more and more extreme messages into these otherwise parts of popular culture that we would consider harmless. And one of the things that I go back and forth on is um, whether or not <laughs> secularization is actually a good thing because of this. Um, because when people were concer- you know, like filling their minds up with religion, they were ignoring a lot of these um, things that actually have like public policy effects, and, and I guess religion did too. But it's the decline of religion hasn't led to this going away at all. Um, and about ten years ago, I thought like, oh, if we, you know, if there's less religions observed, if there'd be a lot more critical thinking in the world. I just don't believe that anymore. Yeah, that's that is the one thing I've because I think people I've seen people post about how like. Oh uh, God! What was it? It was like it was like something. It was some article bemoaning like you know just drops in church attendance and saying, like, "Well, that must be a good thing," but it's like not necessarily because 
um, there are, you know, it's, it's kind of a thing where if like without, without people getting into, you know, even going, you know, being that disassociated and going to their local mega church without that, there are, um, you know, there are far more, there are far worse avenues for them to kind of glom onto, uh, is, you know, in order to fill that, to fill that need. Right. And I, I and I know plenty of people that, uh, I don't think of as like, uh, uh, you know, adroit you know, sociopolitical minds, but they're kind as fuck and they go to church all the time. And I guess I'd rather have them in charge of my revolution than yeah. uh, the people that have read the stack of everything. I, I, I guess like, uh, but you're right. I mean, the general notion that like, uh, yeah, people abandoning the sort of, um, you know, nonsensical portions of, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm a Nietzschean in the sense that, you know, we don't, most of our lives are not lived rationally, no matter who we are. Yeah, unfortunately, I sort of agree with that. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, my opinions on that have changed radically in the past 10 years. Um, although, I mean, you know, uh, I've been I'm always willing to reevaluate my positions. I've always been sort of an anti uh, I've been skeptical of capitalism my entire life. But, you know, I, I used we, we've talked about this before, but right. I came from a very right wing school of it that like until I saw Pat Buchanan kind of low key being soft on Hitler wasn't freaked out by Pat Buchanan, even though there's a lot of stuff that I now go back and read. It's like, how in the hell did I not see that this was super racist? <laughs> oh, God. The just like I mentioned it before, but just Pat Buchanan's 2000 presidential run where they where he bought his campaign bought uh, campaign ads during Monday Night Raw. Yeah, we, just, uh, we lose you. We lost something. I'm going to go get a beer in this opportunity. I want a beer. You want a beer? I want a beer. Well, I only have the one beer, but... Well, I'll have that one. Oh, there you are. I'll have that one. Okay, let's see if I can... There we go. Can't, can't see... Can't, lost you there for a minute. Well, it was the 2000 election, I think, that saw Trump calling Buchanan Hitler hilariously. Right. Yeah, that was like when, the, when Trump was uh, making noise about uh, uh, like doing Reform Party. Yeah, Trump was, uh, I mean, Buchanan had kind of, Buchanan's run where with the Reform Party is kind of a crazy time. I remember, like, I was very young in this time period, and I was a Reform Party supporter, but I ended up voting for this other candidate, and I was 20, so, you know, you can forgive me, who who had, like, split off from, from the major Reform Party because of Buchanan's racial overtones. <laughs> Yeah. You know, but that's the kind of milieu I come out of. And I, I've gone over this story a million times. Um, some of my values actually haven't changed that much, you know. Um, so that's 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 a little bit that's something that I have to try to reconcile. But um, that's where I come from. And I, I also admit that I've become I've actually become much more sympathetic to younger discourses around um left-wing stuff because I, I i coming back to the states i see um that a lot of the stuff that worried me about say um left-wing identitarian politics was really kind of ex was really kind of kids playing around on campuses and relevant kind of but not that relevant and it was and when i was abroad and experiencing this through media it seemed like a much more pressing force. And when I came to the States and actually teach kids, it just doesn't come up that much. So, Oh, you mean, uh, I was like, could you give an example of just like, is it kind of like, like Tumblr culture, not really yeah. leading into real life or. 
yeah, Tumblr culture just doesn't bleed into real life, even if some of the, the frameworks and discourses around it do. There mm. are not gangs of Antifa roaming around college campuses looking for microaggressions. Right. It, it just doesn't really seem to happen, except when there are specific events that would bring both those sides out. Yeah. But they're not generally there. Um, I also have noticed that, you know, that uh, the discourses around education tend to be a little bit harder for me to parse. Um, I have gone back and forth on um, how we reform the education in the U.S. Um, I almost don't think it's possible. So, you know, that's another thing another day. Um, but uh, um, whether or not I think state or federal agencies should be involved in that um, gets gets changes dependingly because I deal with certain states where state agencies are involved more and they seem just as oppressive but in, in like far less competent. But you then see the kind of hash of things that the last five attempts at reforming public education from the federal level have done from Clinton on forward and you've seen no success and in recently you've actually seen declines um, since we started monitoring this stuff since the 70s it was pretty much static. And then in the last five or six years, you've seen some real declines, although not you no longer see it just amongst in the past. You saw it just amongst um, uh, at risk groups. And that's no longer true. It's now across the board. Mm. You could tie this to your earlier remarks about Bernie, I guess, where we're possibly at the point now where there are systemic forces in the bureaucracy that are just so prevalent that trying to make something better even if you have somebody who's a genuine good person with good ideas uh in charge isn't necessarily going to be able to turn the ship yeah um one of the things i've noticed is just bureaucratic drift is a real thing and it's something that i hate to deal with you know that i hate to agree with conservatives about but it's real and it leads to it like it it has changed my opinion on for example the cultural revolution in china which i think was still sort of a power grab but I think the reason why I had such popular support was anger was anger at you know the early revolutionary bureaucracy um, for already in, you know instilling itself even if what was replacing it was worse. It was the uh, so yeah. I've, I've just you know, just as, as an example, it's it's fun, it's fun to talk about even like you know strong lefty folks that I know here in Portland when they have to do when they have to say deal with the city. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's interesting to see what's, you know, what sentiments come up because yeah, you, you know, no one likes dealing with, you know, dealing with that shit, no matter what, what ideology you hold. Right. Well, I mean, I tend to be skeptical of the state anyway. I mean, like this is, this is one of the things where I'm sort of a weirdo as a Marxist. There's been a tendency to see the, the, like a, a strong state and a strong national character as an increased part, an increasing part of left wing culture. Social democracy is sort of that way. Um, Marxist-Leninism is explicitly that way. Um, and, you know, I'm a borderline anarchist. I, I, I've never trusted the state not to codify into other forms of class power. Um, and you know what? That's been consistent throughout my life. It's just whether or not I felt who represented those issues better. When I was a kid, um, when I had to look – when the idea of the left that I had available to me was the failing Soviet Union, which, you know, then collapsed – a bunch of anarchists on Znet. Yeah, Znet. Clint, Bill Clinton, and then I would hear like Pat Buchanan and Palo conservatives talk at like the Battle for Seattle, um, and then I would deal with like international answer in Georgia being you know with all these like 
very marginal sectarian like communist groups in there and being completely dysfunctional, um, the libertarians seemed appealing. And that was stupid. That was me not having a systemic point of view. That was me just reacting to things. And that's where that's why I have this like kind of allergy to thinking about politics purely morally is because it led me down some really stupid paths. But it's also like right now why I'm very hesitant. Like I'm not hesitant to take hard stances on historical questions or on questions about truth where we can know. But when it comes to like policy stuff or geopolitics, I think we I think we really need to stop. Like I almost I've come to agree with Chomsky like it like to some degree like you have to criticize your own country because it's what you really know. Right. But you have to be careful about endorsing anybody else ever. <laughs> like but yeah, about so, the, by extension of the same rule, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and even Chomsky's made that mistake. He, he His writings on the Khmer Rouge um, and manufactured uh, consent are very good, but his writings from the time period have been criticized by historians of the Khmer Rouge for being too soft on the Khmer Rouge themselves. Um, Which is something that he himself has yeah. been very careful to point out. Chomsky's pretty honest. In fact, I miss... I, uh, another big change in my life. When I was uh, in my 20s and my early 30s, I thought that Chomsky was full of shit because, like, you know, he said this radical stuff all the time. And yet every election, he's like, well, you got to back the Democrats. Right. It, you, you, you know, it's bad. It sucks. We don't we shouldn't. He would always put all the necessary caveats in. But we got to back to Democrats. Now, I don't I still don't agree with that all the time. But I now see where that's coming from. And there was an honesty to it because. Frankly, Chomsky realized that nobody really had anything else on the table to come in and swoop up, and otherwise you were just empowering the right. Yeah. Um, and I suppose and, you could make the argument from Chomsky's perspective that it's better to have somebody coming in on the left, even if they're crappy, because when you critique them, at least you have some chance of maybe having them listen. Right. Well, are also like your positions tend to be more radical. One of the things I've pointed out is it, it, in opposition to Trump, um, a lot of left-wing positions have actually moved slightly from the left perspective more rightward. All right, so more more far leftists have moved closer to social democracy. Social democracy, social democrats, who are socialists, have been closer to Keynesianism and so forth. Um, that's partly because when you're in opposition, a lot of things that aren't that radical seem more radical because the other thing, the, the other power is in ascendance during Obama's time period. A lot of the most, you know, the, the resurrection of Marxism, as we kind of know it in the popular culture really comes out of Occupy. That's an opposition to Obama. If we are honest, right. Even though the people at the time didn't even frame it that way. So in some ways you are better opposing sort of a centrist leftist than a centrist rightist but there are there are some caveats to that for example historically speaking center leftists have been more likely to get get away with neoliberalizing um they've been more likely to do all kinds of like authoritarian um immigration reforms and get no pushback from it because very few people are paying attention i mean there's there is a consistency of of kind, but not degree, between Obama and Trump, and people are very hesitant to look at it, except for when Trumpists want to defend Trump and some misguided, well, we're only doing what Obama did, but more so. Yeah, it, it's extremely funny to see people post things that they're outraged about, and then someone points out that it's from before Trump got elected, and then they immediately change the subject or say, well, it's worse under Trump. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes it is worse under Trump, but it, like, and a lot of a lot of times it's very. Also, the crisis has changed. So, for example, um, one of the reasons why this stuff at the border has become more obvious to us is the people coming over are largely are more and more women, children, and uh, queer people, whereas people in the in the up until like 2012 to 2013 were just regular working dudes, or at least our conception were regular of them. working dudes. And you felt less about them. There were, there were less kids in cages because there just weren't kids coming. Mm -hmm. But the crisis of Central American narco terror has now gone on uh, for 10 what? years unabated. And, you know, even, even mild attempts to legalize marijuana, which you think would have a dent in it, hasn't really, um, I lived in Mexico. I lived in one of the regions highly affected by it. Um, and you know what's funny? That's not even where the immigration's coming from. It's coming from Central America, where the murder rates are like five times what they are even in Juarez. They are worse than most war zones. Yeah. Um, the United States plays a role in that, but it's not anything that's being critiqued in this. I, I've heard very little people actually go after um, – like the CIA and DEA's, you know, foreign policy program as part of abolishing borders for why things have gotten so bad in Central America. Um, we, we think about Colombia because there's a lot of because that's that's like our model. But Colombia has been fine for 20 years. It's been drifting right wing, has all kinds of minor crises in it. But it relatively speaking, compared to when everybody thinks is going on the 70s and the 80s, it's been fairly stable. Um no one really talks about how bad things are in Honduras or in El Salvador and why um, or Nicaragua or, or or the one Central American country that doesn't have that problem, which is Costa Rica and what it's done. Um, you know, or we talk about Mexico as a generic whole. We don't look at Mexico like, you know, Mexico as a bunch of regions because Mexico is huge, like the United States is and has very regional problems and they vary greatly from region to region. Um, and we're not looking at that either. Our narrative for this is tends to be like, well, there's this crisis at the border, um, yeah, and there is, yeah, the, but there, there are two different borders. Yeah, there are also two different borders, both northern Mexico and southern Mexico. Correct. And why has it changed? Well, we're not really looking at that. They just, you know, it's the caravan and it's bad. But the larger context for why all this is happening is not a addressed with. And when someone tries to get nuanced on it, a lot of times. They actually end up moving right wing. I won't name names because two of them, you know, or one of those people was associated with my former publisher, but you can figure it out. Douglas Lane. Start, no, not, not so much Doug, but who have defended sort of, you know, national border and national border regimes as part of social democracy. Right. The name that won't be mentioned. Yeah. There's been two of them recently named that won't be mentioned. <laughs> Um, one is not so associated with, with what I do, but yes. Um, but you see these things increasingly now that's like a lot of times they are more nuanced than the, than the borders are bad, which I actually do kind of think borders are bad, but like they're not, they're, they're still not really looking at the causes and construction of how all this is set up at all. Um, and they kind of have a very America centric view of uh, the world. Well, one of the weird things about being a socialist, if you're just focused on one country, you realize capitalism is a multinational project um, of which even quote unquote non-capitalist societies such as China participate in mm -hmm. unquestionably. Um, and I put non-capitalist in quotations because I just don't want to have that debate today. Right. 
Um, it's how, how do you deal with that? And if you're just focusing on the U.S., yes, that's the, the, the nexus of power or one of the main nexuses of power. But the nexuses of power are always shifting. Um, and a lot of the things that we're focused on in the United States are like irrational that Russia is not, for example, it can cause a lot of chaos. But it is neither economically nor militarily, with the exception of it still has its its, its Soviet-era nuclear arsenal, really all that powerful. Yeah, that's what's so mind-blowing to me about the the uh, uh, sort of chicken littleism about Russia that I hear a lot is I just – I don't really know what they can do to us. Well, I think we've – yeah, we, we, something we actually we talked about this. One of the things that we did like earlier this year, or I can't remember if that was the one, the episode either. Um, you were uh, Derek. We were talking to you, or the one we were talking to, like Corey Pine and Aaron Gupta about of like how for a lot of people, um, a lot of RussiaGate rhymes with uh, with um, you know Obama is a you know is kind of like a is a is a Kenyan usurper, right? It, well, you know, the funny thing about Russiagate is I think Russiagate is both ridiculous and also like 80% accurate. <laughs> um, it's ridiculous because it, it, like these things happen all the time. Yeah. Um, it's 80% accurate as I'm sure like most of the stuff that you hear reported in the legal documents are completely real. Um, but – and I'm not – this is not a two-quote K like we do it too, therefore it's good. It's just – it does seem to me like you could manufacture this about any set of political actors, including, frankly, Britain. Or, uh, or Israel. I mean, I feel like that's the one that gets trotted out a lot when compared to uh, Russia. Is like, we know that Israel tries to work towards affecting our elections, for example. Settle down, yeah. Jeremy Corbyn. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Israel, the UK. I mean, but and we do the same thing back. Which, again, doesn't right. justify it happening. We don't want to put, do the two-quote fallacy, which is commonly done on the left. It doesn't matter you know, um, if something is wrong, if someone else does it. But, I mean, we do have to be somewhat honest that this exists in an international competitive sphere where everybody's trying to right. make crucial decisions about everyone else's – or at least influence them. Yeah. Fuckery abounds. It's a game Dude, of thrones, if you will. Will you? Well, and that's, yeah. No, I won't. Well. <laughs> Okay, you don't have to. Jeremy, but that's another this. thing about right now that like, the Game of Thrones are the I used to call it the return to the Great Game period. Is we really don't we keep on talking about these as like massive ideological competition, but it's not. There's not really large ideological competition in the world today. Even like the Islamist, you know, cl class of culture stuff has largely gone away. Yeah, it's profoundly it's boring on that level, positions. isn't it? Huh. I said it's profoundly boring on that level. Like, I'm not sure what we're fighting about, except like uh, this, this or that group of people is the better group of people. But yeah, we, uh, this is World War One, not World War Two. Right. Which is the problem because uh, Americans don't know shit about World War One. Because there's not a heroic narrative where there's a clear ideology and like I I, I saw Wonder Woman. Okay, I think I know a thing or two about World yeah, that, War One. That, yeah, the funniest thing about World War One was like, oh look at all these what is these these faceless uh, faceless uh, you know the the, the Hun like treating uh, treating what is revealed to be um, you know teenage conscripts as if they are all Wehrmacht or something. Right. Like, I mean, it's it's. Uh, you know, the, the the more I study World War One, the more I think most of modern history is a response to it, including World War Two. But it's also the it's also the time period where, except for the Russian Revolution, there really isn't clear ideologies. Everybody's just kind of falling into it as a consequence of of the prior centuries half-assed nationalism. 
Yeah, that's that, um, that was always my like limited understanding. Is at some point you had a bunch of people with a whole sh- shit ton of like conflicting contractual agreements, for lack of a better word to put it, and they decided, and they just pretty much just said, "Well, shit, let's go." Right. Exactly. I mean, that's that's it. It pretty much became well. We we've all we've all got ourselves stuck in this rut. Let's just actually pull the trigger on this. Um, so let me let me just review here. Uh, you are changing your mind on secularization. Yes. Okay. You. Uh, it seems like your interpretation, at least, of Marx has shifted somewhat. Is that correct? Uh, or your somewhat. Perception yeah. Of I it? no longer approach it as a cohesive final canon. Um, okay. I consider it an unfinished work in progress that we need to actually start to finish the work on. All right. And I wasn't super clear on your take on democracy. You said that your views with relation to Marx's perspective on it had also changed somewhat. Well, I used to be anti-democratic. Gotcha. Okay. I wanted to clarify that. Yeah. So so this is a holdover for when I was a right winger. I just thought the majority of the population was kind of stupid. Um, Do you not think that now? I, I don't actually, but I think people have an incentive to be stupid, which is a different thing. Um, so particularly in representative democracy, which I'm still highly skeptical of, you don't have a lot of incentive to know much. You vote for someone, you can't really recall them easily. They're supposed to know shit. They're supposed to fund themselves. You don't have an investment in that situation. Yeah. Good- when, when you are, for example, the union who also runs the, the business, which I still think is capitalist, by the way, and we're not going to get into that debate either, but let's just use it for an example. You have to look out for both the stakeholders of, of everyone in the union, but you also have to keep the business operational. Um, so you have every incentive to do everything right and to also not screw over the people who are producing the things. But you, you still have to act in a capitalist framework because of that reason. Um, similarly, with, with democracy right now, it's both representative highly – and representatives are highly non-responsive. I mean, in some ways, kings are more responsive. Like, you could kill them. There's only one of them. It's pretty easy to behead one. Go have a peasant's revolt. Install a new king. Um, What are you going to do about, like, a broken democratic system that's dependent on money? Well, not much. Throw money at it, I guess. Yeah, you can hope that somebody somebody who... You can hope that you can find a rich patron to represent your interests. Like, Warren Buffett's going to feel generous that day. Yeah, I think what was it? Uh, Brendan Sutton's uh, point was just musing on Twitter one day that uh, maybe the reason why the left hasn't been more successful historically is just we don't have many or any sympathetic billionaires. <laughs> For real? Well, I mean, ironically, we actually did in in the Soviet Revolution, which is a funny thing, but it was mostly just to fuck with Russia. So you know, it's a good bit. Hey, if you <laughs> well, it's the uh, you know you know use the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, use that. Use that. Uh, utilize that. Uh, that pettiness to your own advantage when it when it shows up. Why not? But you have also noticed that imperialist powers have been much le- much more likely to put down the very machines they used pettily just a ten years before than they were in the nineteen twenties, and maybe they learned something. Unfortunately, um, but you know. It, what we see right now, I think, is like the 2020, A, it's going to be the worst year ever for all of us because it's American election year, which makes the entire world suck. And B, um, I think uh, I think we're going to I think I think we're going to be surprised at, at what may reassert itself as the return to normality from a broken system, because that's what's happening in a lot of places. Um, 
Well, maybe, although I would say maybe, but probably not for, say, you know, England for the next few years or a while. No, England's going to be a basket case. But, like, if you look at what Macron represents in uh, France, that's although that's becoming a basket case, too. The thing is, yeah, things are going well for him. Yeah, the return to normality doesn't really work. It's how we got here in the first place. But no one has anything, you know, not scary on option. Like, right. I don't believe the French people really want to be Le Penist. But what else are they going to have? I, I actually don't think the majority of people wanted, you know, hyper Trumpism either. The Republicans sure as hell didn't. But that's what they got now, and they're they're morphing and becoming loyal to it as a as a survival fact. And also, I think part of it is it's not so much like being necessarily um, pro Trump versus versus being uh, anti anti Trump, right? Well, I, well mean, I mean, the other thing is like Trump. Trump has been proven to be a useful person whose agenda is somewhat ephemeral. Other than tariffs, um, and and actually, other than tariffs, xenophobia, and uh, a actually weirdly principled skepticism of war. I don't want to give Trump too much credit, and the way he rages war is brutal. But he doesn't really like it. Are we would have already been in about one? About it, yeah. Yeah, I think it's almost like he's he's screaming because it's. You know, screamish about it, but from a PR standpoint of like, um, like this would be either like not wanting the violence or just thinking that it's going to be unpopular and didn't want doesn't want the popularity hit. Or maybe yeah, like, I don't think it's because he likes people, but maybe like all yeah. the above. Maybe yeah, I think he does though find it personally upsetting. I don't know for what reason, but it does seem like it it it's icky to him. Yeah, I think it's like, the, it's the ickiness. It, uh, yeah, everything else. I mean, he's a ger- he's a compulsive germaphobe, so. Ickiness plays a, a strong role. Lots of role. germs and wars. So. I, yeah. I mean, if I were approaching the Republican Party purely from the <laughs> standpoint of do you want to win some elections and do you want to try to drag this out for a little longer, I think Trump is really a good thing insofar as he has been a shot in the arm in terms of support and popularity. And I think a lot of that does go to this at least faux populism that he right. has managed to bring. So, I mean, it's been painful for a lot of the people who have been all about the, you know, again, morality, which you are mm. so fond of mentioning, uh, but also just the idea of what the discourse should look like. And I think his pushing the party in one direction has probably bought it a little more time than it would have had otherwise. The vulgarization of the discourse has made the discourse a lot more honest, which is something that I, I think a certain kind of centrist liberal actually their test. I think more than even what Trump has done is that the lies aren't hideable as much. But when people talk about how like you know normality ended in 2016, I just laugh. It's just ridiculous. Like this is this is not a new project in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, the, I was going to say that's the. It's one of the constant rejoiners uh, they do mention on Chapo is that at least, you know, mask off, but at least there is some, you know, it, things can be at least it, it sounds scarier, but at least there's something there because at least there's there is it, you know, there's less bullshit hiding it. It's kind of like, OK, well, at least this is straightforward. Well, I mean, when you look at what Trump has done, like Trump's radical, like bananist, you know, white workers state agenda never happened. Yeah. Right. Like, so. What has he done? He's pointed out that most of the prior positions of the Republican Party, not about war, were also pretty vile and now stated bluntly and honestly are clearly, you know, at minimum nationalist as hell, um, despite any other discourse, and that their libertarian veneer was always a little bit thin. 
Right. As was the religious veneer. I mean, because you know, what I don't know how evangelicals survive, like evangelicals' political influence as, as a cultural force survives this. I don't know if it. Yeah, I don't know if it necessarily. This was one of the things that I was pointing out that that it was worth checking out. Uh, Tad delays stuff on this because I think he's. Um, you know, being an ex-evangelical, but also having, you know, done a lot of like uh, a lot of stuff of like I said, it was the one person I've, I've encountered who will like mix together both like Marxist and like uh, like like psychoanalysis to like to really investigate how these cultures actually work. That adds, yeah. adds an interesting uh, an interesting uh, an interesting spin on it that I think is uh, is worthwhile. So yeah, folks, if you get a chance, check out uh, Tad Delay's book called "Against What the White Evangelical Wants" that was published uh, earlier this year. Yeah, I, I find myself in dialogue with a lot of like post evangelicals lately, um, mainly because they're dealing with the collapse of their own culture and the kind of transparent that in politicizing evangelicism, it wasn't that they took over the culture. It's more that the politics took over them. Um, yeah. And, uh, who, who, yeah, who, who subsumed whom as it were. Right. Um, and like, even like the Southern Baptist association had realized it. And so you're just like, well, at the same point, like white evangelical support of whatever Trump, I mean, like whatever Trump says, has has been higher than any president in modern in the modern times. So you know it, it puts the truth to lie about what's going on there and who yeah. subsumes who and and so. But it's funny because when you talk to a certain kind of baby boomer leftist liberal, they kind of still think we're fighting Reagan's moral majority, which is kind of hilarious to me. But that's been dead since probably the middle of George Bush's term. But what are you gonna do? I mean, I think what a lot of them try to do is just kind of move things downfield. Alex Jones's new thing is that the Democratic Party is trying to legalize pedophilia through drag time story hour, drag queen right. story hour. To be continued on the next episode of Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person, subscribe at patreon.com slash giving the mic to listen now.